Hi, and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Jeffrey Robert Wilson. Hello, Jeffrey. Hi, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us. This is a delight. Jeffrey Robert Wilson is a professor at Harvard, is a faculty member in the writing program at Harvard University, where you teach the course, Why Shakespeare? Why Shakespeare Indeed? His first book, Shakespeare and Trump, appeared in April 2020 from Temple University Press. His work has appeared on the National Public Radio, the Chronicle of Higher Ed, New York Daily News, Market Watch, to name just a handful. He holds a PhD in English from the University of California, Irvine. It's great to have you, Jeffrey, and what an amazing book Shakespeare and Trump was. It really was a joy to read. Thank you so much for saying that. It was not a joy to write. Yeah, that, that, that was, uh, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't interested in writing that book. I didn't want to spend two years thinking about that material, but uh, as you guys know, kind of the moment happens and you try to respond in the most ethical, productive way that you can. And that's what came out of it. Well, I mean, I here, think you, do, you do a really good job of exploring, not just Trump and all the things that were happen, have been happening with him, but you, you, you universalize it too. You take it beyond him and explore sort of the, the root causes of what's going on here in the United States, which I think is the most, most fascinating part of, of the book. For context, I was going to let our listeners know that we're in fact recording this on January 19th, 2021. So less than 24 hours left of the Trump presidency, we hope. You teach a class called Why Shakespeare? So why Shakespeare? This is the question I dread because when people see that I teach a class called Why Shakespeare, they want to know the answer. And and Mm -hmm. for the longest time, my answer was, well, that's why I teach the class is because I don't know the answer to it. And I think as soon as I know the answer to that question, I won't be interested in teaching the class anymore. But I did this past summer try a thesis statement for the first time. And I'll see if I can get it right here. Shakespeare's prominence in modernity grows not from the quality of his texts, but from the problems associated with them, textual problems, ethical problems, and interpretive problems. And that because there's so little surety with Shakespeare's texts, it sends his audiences into this interpretive overdrive trying to figure out what's going on. And isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful. And that's, that's the subject for the next interview. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that you explore in Shakespeare and Trump, which I believe is uh, an early interest of yours when it comes to Shakespeare, which is this sort of the nature of evil, you know, embodied in one of your chapters by Richard III. And I think that was sort of a starting point for you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I first got into literary studies. I was just fascinated by evil. I, you know, had kind of seen some some crummy things in life. And I was interested in, in thinking about that more. I was also interested in sometimes why good is so boring and evil is so exciting. Um, and so my first year in grad school, um, my professor, Julia Lupton, had a small independent reading group. And she just said, you all pick the plays and we'll just kind of get together and chat about things informally. And so I, I picked Richard III because I wanted to think about evil. And then just so, so much of my life and career and since then has been kind of things you can do with Richard III. (laughs) So, uh, you know, that's, there's a a book project in there that talks about how when in the 18th century, the most dominant way of reading Richard III's body shifted from this figural interpretation that sees his deformity as a sign of his inner villainy to 
what I call a causal interpretation that sees his experience with physical deformity and social stigma as what brings his villainy into existence, that that shift in the 18th century happened in conjunction with revolution and sort of the way that nature was conceived in so many different disciplines from history to theology to medicine to science to ethics and and so forth and and so that that kind of got me excited about about Richard III and it's sort of stuck with me with a, a number of projects since then it's always fascinating to me how theater and plays resonate what's happening in the world and there there's an, a great example and this isn't just a play that was being written what you're saying is like the way this character was interpreted changed as a result of the way the world was turning. Shakespeare holds the mirror up to nature and he continues to do so even, even after his death. Right, I mean, there's so much interest right now in scholarship that is engaged with the social issues that we're dealing with in our world. And the amazing thing for that is we have such a good model for that in Shakespearean performance, which for centuries has been updating the text based on current events, based on symbolism that you can put into it, based on new resonances, new meanings that you can find in the plays based on analogies that you can draw to something that just happened. And for me, that, that kind of model of performance of using these older texts to think about what's happening now kind of elevates the conversation. And for scholars, we've got a really good model for doing that in performance. We were just talking with Barry Edelstein um, and we were talking about how one of those rioters who's wearing the horns and the painted face is going to be the new Jack Cade. The, yeah, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just terrified of what next Halloween looks like with the costumes that are going to come out of that. <laughs> so evil and Richard III. And it's interesting to me because you brought a piece to this interview, but it's not from Richard III. It is actually the character of Gluster who eventually becomes Richard III, but it's pre-King. So why have you brought this piece of text to us? Yeah, I mean, it's, for me, there's so many different angles and disciplines that are involved in this soliloquy from the middle of Henry VI, part three. So to kind of frame things just a little bit here, it involves classical European traditions, it involves theology, it involves biology, it involves history, it involves law, it involves politics, it involves philosophy, and it involves, of course, theater, since we're, we're talking about uh, Shakespeare. Everyone wants to talk about Henry VI these days, but I have to admit, I've never seen it, and it's almost never done. Have you ever seen it? Performed live? Not live. I've seen filmed live performances, and, and you know, there are those kind of epic versions of the the first tetralogy or the second tetralogy that are staged and inevitably what gets cut out when people try to stage the histories is the comedy in them you know and and then that just saps away so much of the kind of new intellectual work that Shakespeare was doing with those stories you know Jack Cade you can cut out act four of uh, that play and and still tell that story, but that's not the same story at all without Jack Cade's rebellion. I, uh, uh, so is, is this, are you able to see this up on your screen here? Yes. So would, would either of you like to volunteer or shall I nominate someone to <laughs> our reader? <laughs> <laughs> Garrett, would you like to read or shall I? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to read it. That would, be, read that would it. be great, Garrett. So, um, so just kind of in terms of reading kind of one of these bullet chunks at a time and with the, the breaks mm -hmm. in there, I'll kind of jump in and make a comment or two and then we'll kind of go on from there. 
Okay, this will be one of the longer speeches we've ever tackled on the State of Shakespeare podcast. But be- before we move into the speech itself, I wonder, would you give us a little context? Like what What's happening and yeah. what's going yeah, on? Yeah, exactly. So Richard first appears in a couple brief scenes at the end of To Henry VI. And it's it's kind of like those uh, post-credit scenes in superhero flicks where you get to see who the villain and, and the, the sequel is going to be, right? And so at the, in the end of two Henry six at the start of three Henry the six, we get the thoroughly demonized and stigmatized Richard the third of Tudor legend. Uh, so one character calls Richard a heap of wrath, a foul indigested lump as crooked in his manners as his shape. And so that's the image of Richard that we get two Henry six, three Henry the six, but then halfway through three Henry the six, Shakespeare swerves to consider the emotional life of a man who has been subjected to stigma. And so in in this soliloquy from act three, scene two, Richard starts talking directly to the audience in soliloquies and asides, and he's giving voice to his inner life and his torment, his anger, his ambition, his irreverence, and, you know, his plans to deceive and betray and kill his entire family. And so Richard starts out his first soliloquy. It's, It's prompted in this scene, which is a really horrible scene of sexual harassment between Edward IV and his future Queen Elizabeth. And then that moment kind of sexual bravado is what gets Richard going in the soliloquy here. Garrett, I think we've done this speech with Jim DeVita. Do you remember Jim DeVita? He was doing a one-man show. I don't know. Yes, of course. But I think it was Jim who said that this is really the first time you see Richard III, the character, come to life. Prior to this, you haven't really seen the inner workings of Richard III, but this is really, and a lot of times they put this speech in productions of Richard III. Right, exactly. Kali uh, Cyber was the, the one of the first to, well, was the first to kind of conflate some of the Henry VI plays, so this is around the year 1699, into the opening of Richard III, which totally changes the opening of Richard III. I mean, if you don't start Richard III with that soliloquy, now is the winter of our discontent, it's a completely different play. So Sibber's version, which was the one that was played on stages for 18th century, most of the 19th century, starts kind of with the historical background with the end of Three Henry VI. But then that's a completely different experience than Richard coming out and talking directly to us in this intense soliloquy. All right. So this is Henry VI, part three, act three, scene two, and it's the character of the Duke of Gloucester. I, Edward, will use women honorably. Would he were wasted, marrow bones and all, that from his loins no hopeful branch may spring to cross me from the golden time I look for. So, so Richard laments here this discrepancy between where he is and where he wants to be. And I'll, we'll try to kind of move a little bit quickly here, and then we'll slow down as we get towards the middle of it for a little bit more kind of unpacking. And yet between my soul's desire and me, the lustful Edward's title buried is Clarence, Henry, and his son, young Edward, and all the unlooked for issue of their bodies to take their rooms ere I can place myself a cold premeditation for my purpose. So, so Richard next then imagines himself atop this cliff and he's gazing out across an ocean, seeing in the distance this future where he is king of England. Why then, I do but dream on sovereignty, 
like one that stands upon a promontory and spies a far-off shore where he would tread, wishing his foot were equal with his eye, and chides the sea that sunders him from thence, saying he'll laid it dry to have his way. But now, now too many heirs separate him from the crown. So do I wish the crown being so far off, and so I chide the means that keeps me from it. And so I say I'll cut the causes off flattering me with impossibilities. My eyes too quick, my heart, or weans too much, unless my hand and strength could equal them. Well, say there is no kingdom then for Richard. So, so Richard here is just kind of pining for this better existence, and he first considers emulating his lascivious brother Edward, but then he quickly abandons the possibility of love. What other pleasure can the world afford? I'll make my heaven in a lady's lap and deck my body in gay ornaments and witch sweet ladies with my words and looks. Oh, miserable thought and more unlikely than to accomplish 20 golden crowns. Now, Richard's improbable success wooing Lady Anne and Richard III shows in hindsight that he is perfectly capable of courtly romance. Here in, in the third part of Henry VI, however, he doesn't believe himself to be. My love forswore me in my mother's womb, and for I should not deal in her soft laws, she did corrupt frail nature with some bribe to shrink mine arm up like a withered shrub, to make envious mountain on my back, where sits deformity to mock my body, to shape my legs of unequal size, to disproportion me in every part, like to a chaos or an unlicked bare whelp that carries no impression like the dam. And am I then a man to be beloved? A monstrous fault to harbor such a thought. So where Richard's enemies call him a stigmatic and a prodigy, Richard here speaks of his, quote, deformity. And, and he speaks of specific deformities in a way that distinguishes his identity from his body. So this is a Richard of person-first language, as we now call it, right? So this is not a deformed man, but a man with deformities. And it's a moment of what the disability scholar Otto Quaison calls aesthetic nervousness, when the dominant protocols of representation within the literary text are short-circuited in relation to disability. I just think it's, it's a more naturalistic, humane account of his body than Richard ever received before Shakespeare. And that's partly why the subsequent logic in Shakespeare's play has made so much sense to modern readers, but we're gonna kind of go on to see that it's, it's not that easy. Then, since this earth affords no joy to me, but to command, to check, to o'erbear such as are of better person than myself, I'll make my heaven to dream upon the crown. And whilst I live, to count this world but hell, until my misshaped trunk that bears this head be round impaled with a glorious crown. Because it's the, the first time ever that anyone had suggested that someone who's treated as Richard is treated in these Tudor chronicles would suffer anguish and have his own opinions about his body, I think it's fair to say that, that this soliloquy in Act 3, Scene 2 of 3 Henry VI is the first modern representation of disability. And from Francis Bacon to Sigmund Freud, modern essayists have read deformity and disability as Richard does here. So as a link in a kind of chain of events in his essay of deformity, which is I think 16, 
13 is when he wrote this. Bacon says that it's good to consider deformity, quote, not as a sign, but as a cause which seldom faileth of the effect. So but, just to be clear, as opposed to a sign of something going wrong, the deformity has created something in Richard. Right. So, so for the 100 plus years that Richard had been represented, leading up from the end of his life to when Shakespeare's writing his plays about him, Richard's body had been treated as a premonition at birth of the villainy he was going to go on to enact in his adulthood on the one hand, or on the other, it was treated as a physical sign that signified the moral deficiency of the, the spirit inside. Shakespeare throws all that out the window here, and he says it's the experience, one, of living in a body that doesn't work as you would like it to work, or two, it's the experience of living in a society that treats people who have that sort of body in that way that brings about that villainy into existence, so that Richard's deformity in the soliloquy is not a sign, but is a cause, to use Bacon's words. But, but Richard's soliloquies aren't just about his deformity, and this one especially is also about his confusion. And yet I know not how to get the crown, for many lives stand between me and home, and I, like one lost in a thorny wood that rents the thorns and is rent with the thorns, seeking a way and straying far from the way, not knowing how to find the open air, but toiling desperately to find it out, torment myself to catch the English crown. And from that torment, I will free myself or hew my way out with a bloody axe. So here Richard commits himself to treason and murder and tyranny as the antidote to his inability to understand himself. And he confuses this Baconian hypothesis about deformity, that it's a cause that seldom faileth of the effect for a law of nature. So, I mean, clearly, as, as you and I and, and everyone knows, physical deformity, disability doesn't always end in villainy. And, and arguably, the core of Richard's soliloquy is not about deformity, but it's about deception. It's about deception of himself, deception of the other characters that are involved here, and, and deception of the audience as well, to whom he's so compelling. Why, I can smile and murder whiles I smile and cry content to that which grieves my heart, and wet my cheeks with artificial tears, and frame my face to all occasions. I'll drown more sailors than the mermaid shall. I'll slay more gazers than the basilisk. I'll play the orator as well as Nestor, deceive more slyly than Ulysses could, and like a Sinon, take another Troy. I can add colors to the chameleon, change shapes with Proteus for advantages, and set the murderous Machiavel to school. So, so this, this may be the first modern depiction of disability, but it ends up looking backward. It ends up looking back to the Tudor Vice, who was this character in 16th century English drama. And Richard uses his, the Vice's language here to celebrate his skills of deception. So the vice was the, the son of Satan, the root of all evil, the Lord of misrule, the fool of the festival, and, and a chorus who was commenting on both himself and others. But the keynote of the vice is deception. 
He's crafty and dexterous. He sees seduction as sport. He kind of disguises himself and poses as his victim's friend and then dedicates himself to his friend's welfare. And then he lies and cheats and cogs and steals to bring about his friend's destruction. The crazy thing that's happening in this soliloquy here is that Shakespeare is taking this vice character who is so skilled at deceiving the other characters on stage and is turning it on us in the audience and that Richard is deceiving us, that, that Richard is saying, my body is not the sign, but the cause of my villainy. But that is actually one of the confused ideas that he has that is not Shakespeare's argument for how we should understand Richard, but instead is yet one more dramatization of how people make sense of bodies. And so the, the fascinating thing to me about this soliloquy is that Shakespeare is critiquing the way people make sense of bodies in the exact same way with Richard as he does with his enemies. So with Richard's enemies, they stigmatize his disability and that grows from their clear hostility and anger toward him as a villain to their family, as the political enemy of their family. So their stigmatization grows out of their animus to Richard. Whereas Richard's own reading of his body also grows from a situated perspective, a compromised perspective, one that is Shakespeare critiques by attributing it to someone who's not ultimately a reliable interpreter of this situation. And so by attributing both the, as I call them, the, the figural reading of disability and the causal reading of disability, Shakespeare's not endorsing either the figural or the causal reading, but he's showing, he's dramatizing how people make sense of bodies and how the ways in which bodies are loaded with meaning is always wrapped up with the interpersonal and, and social dynamics that we're, we're involved in. Can I do this and cannot get a crown? Tut, we're farther off. I'll pluck it down. So then this is what kind of starts this whole new character of Richard that we're going to meet in the second half of Three Henry VI, and then it's going to go on to develop in the, the play that has his own name, Richard III, and we can hopefully get into some of those kind of later developments here. That's fascinating, Jeffrey. And, and what it sounds to me, what's happening here is that we're getting a very modern view of not just the psychology around disability, but also we're getting a modern view of playwriting because he's taking a couple of things and turning it in, as you said, dramatizing these big ideas that were happening in the Elizabethan time and putting it on stage and turning it in a way that has never been done before. Would that be accurate? Yeah, exactly. So, so the way that I think about this soliloquies is kind of, it would be one thing if Shakespeare just took the one step from the figural interpretation of deformity that was popular in Tudor literature into this causal interpretation that, that he suggested that Francis Bacon later went on to, to argue. That, that would be a step forward. But even in the soliloquy, we get two steps forward because Shakespeare kind of goes one step further than that of, as I say, kind of attributing both of these different perspectives to different characters and endorsing neither of them. And so we move from the, what I would call kind of the spiritual model of stigma with the tutors to the psychological model of stigma, which is what Richard voices here, what Bacon would voice, 
to what I would call kind of the sociological model of stigma, which is interested in not endorsing any one or another absolute meaning of disability, but instead describing how different people create meaning of our bodies in different ways. I wonder whether you feel that Shakespeare has resolved this question or whether it's an open question. And this may be an oversimplification, but it seems like there are two ways of interpreting the evil that is Richard III. Either he is a hapless victim of cruel fate, which is shaped in this way, or the or his deformity is an outward emblem of some inherent inner corruption that is original to him. And then Shakespeare introduces this, this other idea, which is sort of a sort of a snake eating its own tail idea of the, the deformity causes the evil which was a result of the deformity, which may, may or not be. What the original cause is, is I guess the question is, does, does Richard, also, do you think Shakespeare believes that Richard ultimately had agency in this choice or whether this choice was inevitable? Yeah, I mean, it's such a fascinating question and one that Shakespeare asks in the plays himself, right? There's that famous line in Richard III, I am determined to prove a villain. Now, that word determined is doing a lot of work in that line because who's doing the determination there, right? So should we paraphrase that line by saying, I have resolved that I shall be a villain or should we paraphrase that line by saying nature or God or society has destined me to become a villain. I am determined to prove a villain. You know, Shakespeare's asking this question, Garrett, about agency in the exact same way that you're, you're asking it in the plays. And I, I think it's that, that the posing of the question in the actual plays themselves, the leaving of it open without any clear resolution, that kind of creates the conditions that we're still asking these questions and wrestling with them 400 years later. And we're able to study 400 years of people reading and interpreting and making different arguments about that by importing their own beliefs about theology and ethics and medicine into the play, because fundamentally that's that's what Shakespeare's plays and, and Richard III is the key example do, is, is that they ask audiences kind of, what do you think about what's going on here, as opposed to telling us, this is what I think is going on here. And, and for me, kind of the, the key example of that is that one of Shakespeare's sources for his Richard III plays, the true tragedy of Richard III, starts with a character named Truth, coming out on stage and having a conversation with a character named Poetry and Poetry asks Truth, how can I make my words true? And Truth says to Poetry, I will tell you. I mean, that's a, that's a didactic literature right there that is, is describing to its readers what it wants them to accept. And that is such a different way to start a play in the true tragedy of Richard III than in Shakespeare's Richard III, which starts with the protagonist coming out and giving this intensely pained soliloquy that is all about his suffering that creates intense intimacy and sympathy for a person who's going to be go on to be a tyrannical child murderer. That's a completely different artistic experience than a text that says, let me tell you what the truth is. To go back to the agency question, is that line, I don't know, we don't have numbers here, but the line that goes, and from the torrent, I will free myself or hew my way out with a bloody axe. That seems like he's making a choice there, or he has a choice that he's aware of. And I think in an earlier interview, Garrett, you said, what would happen if it wasn't a bloody axe? You know what I'm saying? So it seems to me that he has an awareness of his choice right there. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, Richard says he's lost in a thorny wood, right? In, in Renaissance literature, this is kind of Edmund Spencer, right? To be lost in the woods is always to be lost in the woods of what would I do? Of what, what should I do to be sort of confused? I mean, this is classic Shakespeare, right? This is Hamlet, where he's so confused. He's so stressed out. He's so wrapped up in the choices that lay before him and he doesn't do anything. He doesn't act. He just thinks. And that's where Richard's at until, just like Hamlet, he says, okay, I'm now going to act. But that act is never just, as you say, I'm, I'm going to make a prudent, judicious decision. It is, I'm going to tear this motherfucker down. <laughs> and you get that with Richard. You get that with Hamlet. You get that with a lot of revenge tragedy. And it's that sort of shift from confusion to violence that is so troubling for me and I think a lot of folks who similarly like to live in the world of ideas and try to figure things out and and just you know how do we insulate ourselves from get, getting so wrapped up and bound up that that bad things happen because we're trying to figure the world out you know we have a, a soon-to-be ex-president who is someone who has an inability to govern and probably is well aware of that inability to govern and so what he seeks to do is he seeks to tear down and destroy government itself while still retaining the vestiges of power that accrue to the government that he is attempting yeah, to um, dismantle. You know, one of the ways that Donald Trump gains supporters is very similar to the way that Richard draws in audiences in that play, Richard III, both promise that together we're going to have a fantastic time tearing down these privileged assholes. And Richard III, the entire Lancastrian-York dispute is so stupid that we in the audience just find ourselves fascinated by someone who says, don't you think this is as stupid as I think it is? And we, we align ourselves with Richard and, and we get excited by his, just the, the giddiness that he has in tearing this idiotic, privileged classist system down but then suddenly we get to act three and we've gone along with this person who is now saying let's murder some children and we in the audience need to figure out what do we even do with that how, how do i negotiate this response to this play where i've aligned myself with a horrible person and now i i have to kind of look in the mirror at myself and, and acknowledge the fragility of this proudly proclaimed moral register that I think that I have. And it's just, it's such a, a complex audience experience for us. I have that experience when I'm watching Chekhov and there you have those beautiful moments where after sitting there in, in the audience for a while, you get drawn into these dramas among these people that you start to care about and you start to take sides. And then all of a sudden, a character from another class walk in that has real problems or is aware of what's really going on and you and the audience had this moment of embarrassment where you think my god did i really for a moment even care about the angst that these people were feeling there are people starving all around them that they can't see and i haven't seen up until this moment yeah yeah exactly i mean that's you know um you see it in hamlet again too right is is that this is the most elitist possible play in the world it's in this claustrophobic castle of elsinore and it's all about these privileged folks and then you you see Laertes rebellion and then you see you know the, the gravedigger scene and, and you see the players who come in and and what what Shakespeare's kind of showing is that throughout Hamlet throughout a number of his plays when you have these upper class folks who are using 
beggars and lower class folks as metaphors for insufficiency, when you actually see them on stage and they get to represent themselves, they're actually the ones who are being socially productive in our world, not bringing it all crashing down. Does Richard I, I mean, ever get a ever get an I'm sorry or a I did wrong? Right. So you do get with Richard this tormented dream that he has in Act Five of Richard the Third, where after this just chaotic life that he's experienced the as both a victim of Tudor ideology and a villain to the eventual Tudor dynasty. And after his entire life, his society has told him that he's worthless. And yet he asserts himself, he overcomes all odds, and he proves that he can become king of England. There's just kind of so much repression involved here that toward the end of Richard III in Act Five, he just has this kind of schizophrenic nightmare experience where he's literally talking to himself. I love myself. No, I don't. I hate myself. And and I think there what you see, I guess the way I'd put it is, is that that kind of mental breakdown is the inevitable outcome of that man with that disability born into that society with those attitudes about people's bodies. So there's faith, ultimately. Yeah. And, and I mean, that goes back to that word determined, right? And, you know, when, when Shakespeare asks these questions about determination, he's really asking that the two big questions of the two classical traditions of tragedy, which to oversimplify radically, you have the Greeks who are interested in fate and the Romans who are interested in revenge. And, and the question is, is the story of Richard III a story of fate or is it a story of revenge? Is it a story of someone who was born in this body who has this supernatural sign that he's going to go on to be this evil tyrant that is then destroyed, conquered by a kind of, you know, stand in for God here on earth, this uh, Henry VII figure? Is it a tragedy of fate or is it a tragedy of revenge? Someone who's been harmed, injured, seeks justice, asserts himself and tears it all down as a way to express his anger and, and frustration. So, so, you know, there's these entire modes of tragedy are all wrapped up in that one word about determination and then Shakespearean tragedy, interpreting Shakespearean tragedy is all about etiology, right? It's about figuring out the causes, what causes what to happen. And we can debate those. And that's what's so kind of valuable about these texts is that they, they provide us opportunities to think through these sorts of, of systems and to create ideas that we can then use to hopefully navigate the worlds that we live in. What a beautiful place to leave it, Jeffrey Wilson. Well, this was a delight, Jeffrey. Thank you. Wow. Th I, thank you guys so much. It's, yeah, it's, uh, I get excited about this stuff. It's fun to, to talk to other folks about it. <laughs> Absolutely. It's been a real pleasure, Jeffrey Wilson. Thank you for spending so much time with us. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.